Promise No Promises Songs to Sound Worlds The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further series of episodes devoted to songs to sound worlds, stories to rewrite them, on gender, storytelling and myth. This series emerges from the Autumn 2022 Master Symposium at the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer, supported by Südkulturfonds. Etel Adnan once wrote, spectrally and spectacularly, mountains are spaceships and mountains are women. What else are mountains? What else women? Whose spaceship? And why collapse them into one story? To critically and virtuosically address the world from such mythic and counter-hegemonic positions means to face colonial histories and neocolonial realities, as well as their denial of ancestral and speculative ways of perceiving and shaping that very world. Our Autumn Master Symposium was devoted to artists and thinkers whose work addresses the importance of retelling and reinterpreting stories and myths that regard identity and gender with all their ecological and spectral entanglements intact. Such myths often transcend colonial binaries, offering life-generating languages that employ fiction and fantasy, poetry and song, which predate the systems imposed by heteromodernity and its patriarchization of our most foundational stories. This podcast series features talks and performances by Jumana Emila Bud, Bania Bedi, Christian Campbell, Achaye Kerunen, Astrid Ismaili, Tessa Mars, and Kara Springer. Episode 2 Inheritance Bani Abidi was born in Karachi, Pakistan. She studied painting and printmaking at the National College of Arts in Lahore and later attended the School of Art Institute of Chicago. Her work addresses, in part, forms of nationalism amid the Indian Pakistani conflict and the violent legacy of partition. What I'm sharing is my intellectual inheritance, religio-cultural inheritance, which I find has, it's interesting is there's absolutely uh, very little space for contemporary mainstream cultural conversations, especially in the art world, because somehow, you know, being a progressive intellectual precludes the possibility of relationship with religion or anything that has to do with religion. And that is also the tyranny of Colonization is the tyranny of secularism that is held as an absolute value. And it's only recently that I've started thinking about it. I was in summer, I've been traveling a lot and looking at churches in Europe. And I was the enormity of the relationship of Europe with the Catholic Church 
with the Enlightenment, it, it's all become clear, and it's a bit of an aha moment that uh, the manner in which um, this rejection or refusal of a religious institution kind of formed what we call modernity and how we've all, the whole world, has been sucked into it. The things I'm going to be talking about are um, a tradition of oral history started by a woman 1,600 years ago in current-day Syria, of which I consider myself to be a continuum. The rituals of collective grieving, mourning, and lamentation that perform this history. And last, how this immersion in the language and music of lamentation has um, informed my own um, artistic practice. There has to be a bit of historical background to the oral history that I will um, talk, I refer to. The historical event that is at the center of this uh, living oral tradition is actually an important moment in Islamic history. It's a detailed story about a family, a clan of men, women, and children, which is confronted by a disproportionately huge army. The members of this family are killed, imprisoned, and tortured uh, for their refusal to acquiesce to the rule of um, the king of the time, for they philosophically and politically oppose him. After all the men have been killed, it is a female survivor, the ultimate witness, who lives to tell the story, of which I am a continuum. It is important to locate this story in actual history with some real names and dates. This battle is called the Battle of Karbala, and it's fought in the seventh century in current-day Iraq between the family of Prophet Muhammad and the caliph at the time. His name is Yazid bin Ibn Muawiyah. So Yazid is a tyrannical ruler. I'm telling this like a, like a story. I, my, I think my, fam, my mother, who is 91, is actually streaming this, and she may just start weeping while I'm narrating this also. Uh, but I'm telling it in a very bare-boned manner, um, and she will not approve of it, but I, will, I, am, I am talking to an audience that doesn't know the background. So. so Yazid is a ruler who has inherited his position of power from his father, he has very little to do with spiritual understanding of Islam or the principles of the religion, which is a very young religion at that time. We're talking 680. This religion of which Muhammad's immediate family, they consider themselves to be the intimate guardians of this knowledge. Hussein, who's the grandson and the living head of Muhammad's family, is asked by Yazid to give allegiance to him. And that was a common practice at the time that when you became a ruler, you have to seek the allegiance of um, all important members of the community. But Hussein repeatedly refuses. In the meantime, a small a group of people from a town in Syria, historically known for their rebelliousness, decry Yazid's rule, call him out, and they send a message to Hussein and his family that, please, you have to come to our aid. Um, you have to help us and lead us, because we are not approving of this, of this tyrant. So Hussein, along with his whole family, organizes this long journey to go and meet the people in Kufa. On its way, this group of around 70 men, women, and children, the group is intercepted by the um, army of Yazid and the desert um, plains of Karbala, also today's Karbala uh, in Iraq. The demand still is that Hussein must validate um, and acquiesce uh, to Yazid's rule. If not, the family will first be blocked from accessing the river Euphrates, which is nearby. And this is a very important motif in this entire story, for thirst is a, a constant and repetitive form of, of torture. 
And following that, if you do not approve, there will be, you will be militarily confronted. And so it happens that the group sets up their camps, are cut off from the water, but still refuse to surrender. They ask to be allowed to retreat in peace, but they're surrounded. So on the third day, they're confronted in a battle in which all the male members of the family, save one who is sick, are killed. The women and the children are taken as prisoners of war and are marched to Damascus, uh, to the court of Yazid. And it is this public display, the march of handcuffed women um, and children through towns and um, villages that is pivotal to what follows. For Zainab, who is the matriarch of the family, she's the eldest person sort of alive, um, and it's all children and other women. She's the sister of Hussein. She starts telling onlookers of the slaughter that has just ensued as she's being paraded as a spoil of war. She asks that everyone who is listening to spread the word and narrate and repeat this story. For if not, the only history that will be remembered will be the one written in the court of Yazid. So this is the beginning of an oral telling. Um, Zainab, who is a woman in her 50s, is known for her wisdom and most importantly, eloquence, and has been an intimate advisor to her father, Ali, who was the last uh, of the four Muslim caliphs. Her final act of defiance is a public address in the court of Yazid, where she shames him in front of all his courtiers and companions and vows that this crime of gross proportions that he has committed will change the course of history. So what I've recounted is a very bare-boned telling of this event, but what this event galvanized in its wake was the assembly over hundreds of years of a tragedy told retold, sung, written, performed, and embellished, but always with the same set of characters, challenges, and sequence of events. The Battle of Karbala is, for Shiite Muslims, the ultimate symbol of the victory of good over evil, of truth over falsehood, of resolute refusal in the face of coercion, and above all, a multifaceted treatise on an intergenerational familial love loyalty and loss. What Karbala eventually gave rise to is one of the most enduring traditions of elegiac poetry and commemorative language across multiple languages and um, geographies. That's my mother. These are uh, recordings from the summer in Karachi.
So these are recordings of gatherings that are called majalis, um, sharing recordings of our women-only majlises. What is being spoken of and narrated is incredibly detailed. If this battle is uh, taking place over four days, the wait is over four days. Every little interaction in this moment of waiting is articulated. A child's fear about losing her father, a brother negotiating with his brother whether he wants to fight, go enter this battle and confront the enemy, an aunt comforting her nieces and nephews. What is being shared is the structure of a family taken and, and looked at from all sides and all kinds of these very heart-breaking moments and conversations being cast into poetry. These gatherings are held every year for um, the duration of 10 days the period called Ashura, which is the anniversary of this battle. It's the time of the year where Shiite families collect privately and publicly, recite poetry and music, listen to theological and philosophical lectures by religious scholars, and collectively mourn and grieve this event. The sung poetry recitations you just heard are called Marcia and Noha. They're both forms of Persian elegiac poetry that traveled to South Asia around 400 years ago and are a living art form that they continue to be written and composed. It is at this point that I need to step in and say that whether one believes in uh, the political urgency of the original historical moment, um, event, or whether you're a Shiite or Sunni Muslim or a non-believer, the ship has sailed, so to speak. And what we now have is a vessel. This memory and this tragedy is a vessel laden with metaphor and allegory that docks on different shores every year. In the societies where this tragedy is a living form, it is ultimately a deeply embodied grammar of resistance. It has been employed over history in a myriad ways, in political agitations and protests, in anti-imperialist struggles, in radical leftist poetry, but most importantly, it is an annual scathing critique of all present day oppression. Josh Malia Badi, who's a mid-20th-century uh, Pakistani poet who is known as the poet of revolution, a leftist intellectual who was addressing one of uh, Pakistan's many dictators, I imagine, wrote, Jao, keh do hukumat ki negibano se, Karbala ek abadi jang hai, sultano se. I translate, go tell those protectors of power 
Karbala is a battle against tyrants in perpetuity. So before I move on to my work, I want to talk about the affective importance of Ashura for me. To begin with, my Ashura immersion, as I call it, happens best in Urdu, in my language, and preferably presented in a classical Indian musical raga. This is to demonstrate that traditions of lamentation are deeply rooted in particular traditions of art and music and differ hugely across geographies. So even though I've had the experience of English and Arabic and um, Persian majlises, they become mere sort of anthropological um, experiences for me. And here's an essential thing to consider. The appreciation, cognizance, and knowledge of this story is deeply embodied and has grown and accumulated in my heart and mind, not only through generational inheritance, but slowly over the course of my own life. I remember as a 12-year-old, closely listening to the story for the first time and crying, thinking about one of the little girls who loses her father. The following year, when that part of the story came up, I turned to my mother and I said, well, I heard it last year. And I don't feel like crying now. I, I know what it is. So, but here I am as a 50-year-old who has learned over time how to collectively grieve and weep with a room full of strangers. Because what I now understand is that this ev evocative, heartbreaking verses of Marcias and Nohas are there to hold our hand as we mourn our own losses, those of the uh, ones around us, and we mourn the existential loss of ethics and justice. And through this yearly ritual, we somehow renew our resolve every year to pick up and, and start again. This is the background which I have been dying to bring uh, forth to an audience. So I'm going to talk a bit about the projects, two of my projects, which are deeply influenced by the idea of lost sounds, of uh, censored, um, censored letters, of songs that were recorded, songs that stopped being um, sung, songs that were archived and put away forever. The project is called Memorial to Lost Words that I did in 2016. And between 2014 and 2018, there was a lot of work being done on World War I history because it was the anniversary. And what came out this time more than ever was stories of all the foot soldiers, North African soldiers who fought on behalf of the French and uh, South Asian soldiers who fought for the British. And the numbers are enormous. It's like, uh, you know, more than a million like young men went to war uh, on behalf of the British and more than 70,000 were killed. Um, so I, for an, a whole number of reasons, I had already been reading and thinking about these men. And as it happened, I live in Berlin, and one of the things that uh, started being shared at that point was what became known and documented was that there was a prisoner of war camps uh, set up outside of uh, Berlin. And all the prisoners of war were brought there, South Asians, they were Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs. And the first idea was to get uh, the Muslims to fight a jihad on behalf of the Germans, to get them excited to join the Ottomans. So there was a letter called Al-Jihad that was came out of Berlin uh, in 1916. That kind of failed. They were very loyal to the crown, and they were fatigued with war. They did not want to fight. The call to war just failed. And it became a human zoo, as was common at that point. And people would come and see you know, rituals and uh, dances of these men from uh, South Asia. 
But what also started happening, there was voices and dialects started getting recorded by a linguist of that time, Wilhelm Dergen. And he recorded directly on phonographs, and there are about three to 400 recordings that were actually put away in an archive uh, and never really heard. But these men were called on to come and record their singing or whatever they wanted to offer. And these records were put away, and only in the 1980s, 90s, they were found and heard and translated. What was really haunting a lot of these letters and uh, sound recordings were SOS messages. So they were like almost ghostly sounds that were heard like 80 years after the fact and that had never been heard. This is a Syrian soldier, and it's a bit, uh, it's a sound recording of his. This is actually uh, yeah, from one of the uh, recordings from that time. At the same time, at one point, there is the sounds being recorded. And on the other hand, there are letters being written home from hospitals and from the war front. And a lot of these letters that these young men were writing were being censored because there was a fear that they would actually prevent people, more people from registering, uh, from coming to the war. And there would of often be scribes writing them. So uh, always says written by somebody else. A lot of these boys were unlettered and um, couldn't write themselves. So they're written in all kinds of languages. These are censors. They were censored. You can read some of these letters, but the premise of this Memorial to Lost Words was an exhibition called a More Lasting Than Bronze that was happening in Edinburgh. And Edinburgh is a city that's known for its uh, monuments. And the um, invitation to the artist, there were six commissions, was to think about a memorialization and monuments which are not concrete. And of course, linking back to my interest in oral history and folk songs. The idea was to pick up things that had been erased uh, through the course of time, uh, forgotten. These letters are all from the archives in the British Library and been collected by a scholar named David uh, Omissi. It's a sound installation, which I will share with you, and letters. And they are sort of suggest very ordinary trials and tribulations and fears of young people, young men. I have no need for anything, but I have a great longing for a flute to play. What can I do? I have no flute. Can you get me one from somewhere? If you can, please do and send it to me. Take this much trouble for me. For I have a great desire to play upon the flute, since great dejection has fallen upon me. 
you must, you simply must get me uh, from somewhere, get me one from somewhere. I have no need for anything else, but this you must manage as soon as you can. Make a small wooden box, put a little cotton wool in it, and get a flute to play on in the middle of the cotton wool. Then put a little cloth over it. Get Umaruddin to write the address in English, and it will reach me all right. Pack it so that the flute will not shake about. I shall be very grateful. I have no need for anything else. You must arrange this as quickly as possible. Uh, I got together all these texts, the letters. Um, I found folk songs that were sung by women a um, hundred years ago, uh, which were songs of resistance in India. And I had them recomposed and uh, sung and arranged by musicians in Pakistan. Um, and eventually I occupied the uh, Scottish uh, parliament with speakers. And um, so it was a sound installation in a parliament chamber. So this is one of the letters that is being sung out. Yeah. 
It was a really uh, profound experience to see Punjabi filling the halls of uh, Parliament Chamber in uh, Edinburgh. The project went on to have many lives and many iterations, and this is one of my favorite moments where in Lahore, um, in the armory of the museum, stands the statue of Queen Victoria, and I surrounded her uh, with eight speakers, and we played the song, so it was actually the memory and the ghostly um, voices of these soldiers who were singing at her. Um, and it was also an interesting moment that had to do with language. Somehow, and I think this is more uh, pertinent to South Asia, and I think in the Middle East there's a lot more use of Arabic, but somehow contemporary art happens in English. And uh, when it happened, and <laughs> when I played the song, which is in Punjabi, I had all kinds of people befriending me. There was so much excitement amongst the community that had nothing to do with art because for once they had understood just the basic shift of language had uh, changed access completely. I um, hired a carver of tombstones, um, and these are marble tombstones, and their letters were all engraved onto them, so that's a way of accessing the text, and it's surrounded by the song. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Gender Center for Excellence a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit detank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Editing and voiceover, Elena Cesar. Music, Niklas Kammermeier. Research Team, Tabea Rotfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and Communication, Anna Franke. Technical Support by Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, 2023.